From the right policies to the right politics, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions helps bring durable climate solutions to life from a right-of-center perspective. Learn more about Cress's mission and programs, including the Clean Energy Boot Camp for candidates and elected officials at www.cressenergy.com. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Plugs In podcast. Our guest this week is Congressman Jared Huffman. He is a Democrat from the second congressional district in California. He's on the House Natural Resources Committee. He's on the House Select Climate Crisis Committee that Speaker Pelosi created in the last Congress. Uh, very vocal on energy and climate issues. We are uh, we're very thankful that that you've uh, agreed to join us this week. Thank, thanks for coming on. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining the Plugged In podcast, Congressman. And uh, imagine you're a bit jet lagged uh, coming back from Glasgow. I uh, got a good night's sleep last night and uh, I'm ready to get back to it. But uh, it was a whirlwind trip, uh, partly because uh, that's just what being at the COP uh, is like. But when you're there with Nancy Pelosi, you know, she's got this saying that rest is rust. And when you travel with her, uh, that's pretty much what it feels like. Yeah, I did the uh, the John Lewis trip to, to Selma with her, and uh, I was exhausted by the yeah. end of it. It's impossible to keep pace with her, and she's doing it in three-inch heels. I'm doing it in sneakers, and I'm still hurting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so, yeah, I mean, what, what was your, you know, so this, so this was the, a Democrat you know, delegation. You, you were there with, with Speaker Pelosi, you know, other, other, you know, a number of Democrats, uh, including on the Climate Committee. What, I mean, what, what was kind of your message? It sounds like it's, you know, America is back, but of course, you know, a lot of uh, skepticism, I mean, as far as like the, the agenda domestically isn't, isn't finished here. I mean, so how do you think that was received uh, from, from allied countries, from, from other, I mean, people you ran into in you know, other delegations? Yeah, I, I think it was important that we were there uh, to reinforce uh, Secretary Kerry and President Biden and everyone else that the world was hearing from uh, because you're right, there is skepticism. There are still you know, disconnects and deficiencies in, in U.S. policy as we as we try to now step in back into a leadership role and get the rest of the world to take bold action. So I, I think uh, having a large congressional delegation that included a bunch of key committee chairs and other leaders and, and obviously Speaker Pelosi was very, very important. Congressman, I have a question on the on, on the disconnect. You know, obviously, look, I'm a Republican from Kentucky. I had a front row seat to the energy transition during my years at FERC. And look, Waxman-Markey was never enacted. The Clean Power Plan was stayed by the Supreme Court. President Trump pulled the U.S. out of Paris. Yet carbon emissions continue to decline in the U.S. power sector. And the U.S. continues to lead the world in emissions reductions. Does that not resonate with our international allies? <laughs> that rings pretty hollow, Neil, uh, honestly, because frankly, uh, you know, they went down because natural gas was replacing coal during that same period. And uh, the more we do proper methane accounting, it appears that that, uh, that natural gas bridge, uh, you know, had a dark side as well. But they started going up again just before the pandemic. And, you know, they're on a, they're on a path to to, to not meet uh, the goals that we have set. Of course, we still lead the world in per capita greenhouse gas emissions along with Canada. 
Uh, we have put more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that are warming the planet right now than any other country, and and everyone knows it. So you know when you uh, you know put put points like that out, uh, I think especially the world community they just see it as self serving spin. What what uh. What, what I mean, how so you know where we are right now? Obviously, you know the bipartisan infrastructure bill is is passed. Uh, we signed in the law by the time this podcast airs. Uh, Build Back Better, you know, big week uh, upcoming here when when again when this podcast lands as far as in, in the House. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it seemed like the Biden administration was really selling the infrastructure bill itself as like partially a climate bill. They're really playing that up. They're saying, you know, we're, we you know that sets us on course to delivering with what we said we would do. Build back better. I mean, it still feels like the Senate is going to have a large say in what happens here. It's still going to be a while. I mean, how, yeah. How do you feel like you know you've been able to make the case that there's actually substance to the policy? I mean, are people buying it, or it's just kind of you know not there yet? I, I think the key, uh, Josh, is to just be honest. Um, and so, as as eager as I am to uh, you know for the United States to claim a leadership mantle uh, in these global uh, climate proceedings, um, we're going to undermine our credibility if we just fall back on uh, talking points and spin. And, and, you know, Neil, and the other piece in response to your previous question, you know, we continue to export fossil fuels like never before. That was the point I was hoping to make. And so, uh, you know, we're not even doing an honest accounting of emissions when you factor all of that in. It's not you know, the wonderful, pretty story that API and others like to tell about our emissions reduction. We're, we're part of the problem in a big, big way all over the world. Right. And, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, I, I actually, you know, just as, as we're on that, did you, you know, there's been a number of pledges to come out of COP. Uh, you know, I think we're kind of, you know, advocates are saying, okay, well, let's see this put into action at this point. But one of those was the U.S. joining um, a pledge that the U.K., you know, initiated around uh, fossil fuel finance, stopping export, uh, finance, yeah, finance, public finance, uh, and, that, and that extended to the U.S. joined that, including oil and gas, not just coal. I mean, the details are going to be worked out as far as, uh, you know, how that's actually uh, implemented by export, you know, the XM Bank and agencies like yeah. that. But did you, did you find that to be a significant step from, from the U.S.? It's a really important part, I think, of the the puzzle because uh, in addition to you know just not building more coal plants and you know staying on this aggressive trajectory to phase out fossil fuel domestically uh, we've got to stop developing fossil fuel dependency around the globe and i have traveled enough and you know visited with embassies in latin america and asia and other countries to know that a huge amount of our diplomatic presence in countries all over the world is intertwined with promoting US fossil fuel exports and development of fossil fuel projects in these other countries by US firms. So we are deep into international fossil fuel development. And that's, you know, before you even get to the XM Bank and to our voice and vote on the World Bank, um, if we're serious about doing what the science tells us we have to do and honoring the good language that is starting to come together at COP26, We've got to unwind all of that. And, you know, there's just going to be tremendous institutional resistance. What did you make of China's lack of participation and engagement? They didn't amend their pledges, but then yet they were a surprise party uh, to the to the Wednesday announcement. Um, seems like a first 
step, but you know, uh, a lot of trust but verify there. What what was the sense amongst fellow participants about uh, China's role in this conversation? D disappointment certainly that their head of state did not participate, like so many other heads of states. Uh, you know. I don't know quite what to read into that. They're citing COVID and other things for, for not being there. Uh, they did have a delegation and they were actively uh, engaged in negotiations throughout the conference and still are right now on, on finalizing the draft language uh, in, in some unhelpful ways, uh, as I understand it. Uh, but you know, maybe China saw uh, over the course of the conference that it was a strategic mistake for them to cede leadership to uh, the United States and the EU and the UK. Uh, and uh, at least by virtue of this new agreement that Secretary Kerry has apparently forged, uh, you know, we, we might see China getting back in the game. I, I think it's a huge strategic mistake for them not to be part of global leadership because the rest of the world is moving. And the US obviously is, is gonna play a leading role uh, with or without China. Yeah, let's let's get into to build back better, you know, a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously, again, as as we as this airs, I mean, it's expected to be a, a big weekend in the House. We might might get get a vote right on on build back better. Um, so what? I mean, we've talked, you know, in our conversations. I know, right? It was the clean electricity uh, performance program was taken out because of, of Joe Manchin. Um, you were saying, you know, let's see, let's get this money redeployed. Uh, it looks like you know it has been. We now have. Uh, 555 billion to, to climate initiatives. That's the most uh, dedicated to climate before. Uh, it's mostly tax credits. I mean, is that is you know is, is that really gonna do you think get get the job done? Uh, you know, or, or is there something else that needs to come in? I know the methane fee is something that looks like it's gonna stay in in the House. We don't know how that'll end up in the Senate. The Senate's talking about a carbon uh, a carbon fee. That's a Sheldon Whitehouse uh, Ron Wyden initiative. I know the House is kind of skeptical of that. You know, where, where, where are we? Well, we're, we're late in the game and we need to hurry up and get this over the finish line, I think is the answer. So I hope that, uh, you know, the Senate's desire to, you know, deliberate endlessly and some senators with wonderful intentions from my perspective that, that want to try to revive, uh, you know, other climate strategies. It's just too late for that. Uh, is my view. And uh, this this deal that's come together that I expect to pass out of the House in the days ahead is, is far from perfect. Uh, in fact, even calling the methane fee a methane fee is, is uh, I think, uh, pretty generous because uh, you only get to fees when you've exhausted something like $700 million in subsidies up front to, to get polluters to stop polluting. And I find that you know pretty repugnant, but um, this is the art of the possible. And when you've when you've still got you know a lot of folks very close to the fossil fuel industry, these are the tools that uh, you kind of have to resort to. So I hope the Senate, um, you know, does something that the Senate rarely does, which is basically take a housework product and hurry up and pass it. Well, that's probably not likely, uh, based on you know what we're hearing out of some of the key Senate negotiators. I mean, it sounds like you're already you know kind of disappointed with the state of the House bill. How are you going to feel if it comes back even further watered down from the Senate? Uh, I mean, uh, at that point, do you just take what you get from the Senate or do you push back? I don't know, Neil. I don't know how many iterations of this, you know, our schedule and our you know, political elasticity can sustain. Um, but, you know, I think 
I'm going to be urging the, the climate champions in the Senate to just finish this. Uh, the, there, there's a point of diminishing and even negative returns, and I think we're we're there. Um, and I know that our leadership and the president uh, feel the same way. Um, so it, it's just time to get this done. And, and I, I think the other point to yours and Josh's question, this isn't uh, the end, uh, nor is COP26 the end. I think everyone has to have a very clear-eyed understanding. We're just beginning uh, to take action on climate change. We're going to be dealing with this as a top priority every single year for the next decade and beyond. Yeah, you know, I, I hear you. I hear you on that. Um, you know, but I, I also, you know, remember Democrats. You know, the messaging for a long time was kind of like last best chance. I mean, I think there's an element because of the time uh, aspect yeah. of climate change and the need to, you know, the, uh, cut emissions. What about 45 percent globally by 2030 to keep 1.5 degrees alive? But at the same time, I mean, control of Congress, right? I mean, <laughs> it's rare that you know to have a, a Democratic trio. Uh, you know, right now, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are saying that you know Republicans are in a pretty good position uh, in the House. Uh, you know, the Senate seems like a toss up. Like, I mean, right? Isn't there an element of like no guarantees and that this, this kind of might be it for a while? I, I think it kind of underscores the last best chance uh, narrative. Uh, and, and look, last best chance doesn't mean it's our last chance to act. It, it means it may, maybe it's our last best chance to, to get on the right trajectory. I mean, this is what COP26 was all about. It wasn't about solving the climate crisis. It was about keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius in reach, uh, not even getting to 1.5 degrees. So we've got to reset the trajectory. And it, it's the actions we take at the early end of this decade that are going to decide whether we still have a chance of getting there. I would say about Build Back Better, uh, that it's you know far from perfect, but it keeps us in the fight. It gives us a chance. And between the administration and whatever happens in the midterms and you know states and subnational leaders, uh, I think we've got tools to continue making progress with. Uh, the climate provisions aside, looking at Build Back Better, pretty, uh, pretty jarring numbers on inflation that came out this week. How do you think that concern regarding inflation at a macro level is going to impact the debate on Build Back Better? Well, I think we're going to have to explain what Build Back Better is and what it isn't. It's not an immediate infusion of, uh, you know, a trillion dollars or more into the U.S. economy in an inflationary way. It is not something that adds to the debt or deficit because it's paid for. Uh, And in many ways, it's about getting parts of the economy that have contributed contributed to the, I know we're not supposed to say transitory inflation, but contributed to this, what I believe will be short-term inflation uh, because the, the economy is stuck, supply chains are stuck and there are things in Build Back Better that will help get it unstuck. So for lots of reasons, and you don't have to take my word for it, we've got you know some Nobel Prize winning economists that have said this, uh, this, this legislation is actually deflationary. It's part of the answer to those inflationary concerns. Now, now we've already seen Manchin, uh, you know, flag the, the latest report on inflation and say that it's not transitory. You know, he's I mean, people are reading that as like, I mean, it's always been thought he, he kind of he said, you know, let's slow this down. I mean, are again, are you concerned this is just another thing Manchin can use to kind of grind this process, you know, to not if not to a halt, you know, really slow it down into into even like next year? Of course, I'm concerned. Yeah, that that's why. Uh, 
you know, it was uh, it was very difficult uh, to put up a vote for the, the the Senate infrastructure bill without as much certainty as possible. So, uh, you know, we are at risk of Senator Manchin um, taking us in a really unfortunate direction, but we are trusting the the vetting and the outreach that has taken us to this point and the assurances of the president that we can get it over the finish line. Uh, building on Josh's earlier point about you know history and the possibility of of uh, uh, the House flipping next year, one of the things I've always appreciated about you is is your willingness to work with your counterparts on the Republican side. I know you've got a great relationship with Congressman Graves. Uh, you know, Republicans did lead a delegation over to COP 26. Uh, they are talking about an agenda focused on innovation. Uh, and, 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 and technology-driven carbon reductions. Should the House flip next year, um, you know, uh, do you have some optimism about your ability to work with your Republican colleagues? It, again, uh, uh, it, to your point, this is a first step. We're going to have to continue to build on it. Mm -hmm. Do you think you can work with Republicans in a Republican House majority to, 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 to go in that right direction? Well, well Neil, I, I always try. And uh... You know, the fact that we haven't been able to do more together is, uh, you know, deeply disappointing to me because I don't think this this crisis, which is really all about, you know, physics and hard realities that are going to visit a lot of misery on all of us and, and maybe our, our species, uh, that shouldn't be a partisan thing. It's just a real thing that we ought to be confronting together. And so it's very frustrating and disappointing that we're not doing more. Um, the politics of this are... Um, still very difficult and you're right i can i i, I like garrett graves we we get along and, and find ways to work together all the time uh but on climate the piece that we have to confront is the transition away from fossil fuels and, and when you when you go to cop 26 if you listen to the science really to the rest of the world it's just so obvious that we have to do that and that's the one bridge that Mr. Graves and my other Republican colleagues just won't cross. Uh, they want to believe that you can um, sort of talk about climate, assure the public that you, you get it and that you're acting while still promoting more fossil fuel extraction and burning and emissions. And that's just not responsive to this crisis. It's a, it's a huge disconnect. And until we address that, we're going to be rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. We're going to be uh, yeah, maybe working together on some resiliency things, uh, on nature-based solutions and living shorelines. Those are all great things. Uh, we'll work together on research into things like advanced nuclear and, uh, you know, I suppose carbon capture utilization and storage, but none of that is going to reduce emissions this decade. And the science and this entire global conference that I just came from is all about the stuff we have to do right now at the front end of this decade to have any chance of keeping 1.5 Celsius in reach. I, I just find very few, if any, um, willing partners across the aisle on that. I know oceans Oceans has been a big focus for you. Do you have some optimism about, uh, about doing some positive work there? Uh, I, I think certainly on, on sea level rise, uh, you know, that takes us into that safer uh, place of collaboration uh, with resiliency. Uh, and, and, you know, Congressman Graves, for example, uh, you know, he, he's going to lose more and more of Louisiana unless and, and until we confront that. But as I say, you know, if we're 
if we're putting in band-aids in the form of you know barrier islands and wetland restoration over the next few years while still uh, burning up fossil fuels uh, and rising the sea levels uh, even more uh, th that's not a very uh, functional or productive cycle do you i'm curious i mean do you you know I've too have been told, you know, that you and you and Graves particular, I'm just citing him because he's uh, you know, the top Republican on the climate committee, but you know, get along like behind closed doors, is there more of a kind of a conversation around like re reducing emissions from fossil fuels beyond just carbon capture, which you know again isn't totally proven or widely commercial yet, but you know, yeah. scientists say is important. But I mean, is the, is, the, is the conversation any different or is this just a public facing thing that Republicans are doing to because they feel like they have to i mean i i don't know if it's I, I don't want to suggest that it's only public facing that there's there's no uh you know sincerity to it but i will say this um i have been unable to persuade any of my republican colleagues you know other than you know maybe brian fitzpatrick who's already there you know there's a handful of republicans that will push back on the fossil fuel industry mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part those that are close to the fossil fuel industry that have a lot of fossil fuel um you know, infrastructure and jobs in their uh, states and districts, they want to believe that fossil fuel is part of the answer to the climate crisis. And uh, it, it's not, it can't be. So uh, no, we, we are unable publicly or privately to, to bridge that disconnect. Do you, do you, uh, Congressman, what, oh, sorry, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, just, I, I wanted to, I mean, you know, as we're talking about fossil fuels, I mean, there's a conversation happening now in the Biden administration that kind of they're kind of defensive about it. They're in the short term saying they're they're seeing prices go up for gasoline, for natural gas, uh, for in-home heating. Obviously, it's not you know severe in the U.S. as we've seen in Europe and Asia, but there's you know the, there's an energy crunch right happening right now, and they're saying you know we need to see uh, OPEC you know, produce more, uh, you know, or they're pursuing other avenues, you know, by the time this comes out, maybe they've done something released crude from, from the SPR or, or, yeah, I mean, is, do you find, they're saying that there's no inconsistency to say, look, we, in the short term, we can, we need to make sure markets are stable, but at the same time, promote this transition off fossil fuels. Is that compelling to you? Does that make sense? Or is that just total, you know, BS? Well, it's, it's reality uh, is what it is. I mean, it recognizes the fact that unfortunately um, in this early part of the decade, we still uh, are very, very dependent on fossil fuels for transportation and other parts of our economy. And so, um, yeah, in the very short term, uh, when you see market manipulation, price spikes, you know, the usual misery that the fossil fuel industry uh, here at the U.S. and globally, you know, puts us through all the time. This is the roller coaster of being dependent on fossil fuels. Uh, yeah, you're going to have to, in the short term, take some steps to address the fossil fuel problem there. But you ought to be bringing, we ought to be bringing at least as much urgency to liberating us from that fossil fuel roller coaster. And so, you know, the, this national EV charging uh, infrastructure and all of these tax credits to give people an alternative, a way off of that miserable roller coaster, ought to be just as urgent, um, more urgent, really now than ever. So, Congressman, one one of the challenging things I think for for those of us who are are in this space, who are concerned about carbon mitigation, is that it's tough to break through and get 
you know, uh, uh, the average American to, to really think about what the implications for climate change are on their daily lives. I know one of your personal hobbies and uh, probably predicated on, on your district uh, is winemaking. One of the most effective presentations I've ever seen at an energy conference uh, was by Michael Mondavi, who spoke about the implications of climate change on winemaking and how it was going to alter winemaking and how some of the grapes produced and the wine produced in Napa today will not be sustainable and that you'll have to move further north and it could have implications for French wines as well. I, I thought that was a really visceral and effective presentation. And, you know, can you speak a little bit about that, about your interest in winemaking and, and, and what the nexus could be between climate change and, and wine? Yeah, that, well, there is a nexus and, you know, wine like just about everything else we can think of is, is going to be profoundly affected by climate impacts. Um, I wish I still had the time to make wine, but when I came to Congress, I had to give it up. I still have, you know, a basement full of carboys and tubes and barrels and, you know, maybe someday I'll get back to it. But Michael Mondavi does a great job of making the point that, you know, whether it's the changes in the climate itself uh, or whether it's things like the smoke damage that have caused, you know, the entire year crop losses uh, in the Napa Valley and in other places. Um, you know, this may seem like a first world problem that it's just hitting elite, uh, you know, wine uh, grape growers, but it, it's more than that. What, whatever breaks through to people, I think is great. And so I welcome uh, the, the leadership, the wine industry in explaining how they're gonna be hurt. I welcome how the ski industry uh, is explaining to folks that, you know, this is real and it's here. Uh, for the first time um, in California, we've got a major ski resort that, that can't even operate because all of its facilities burned up uh, through, the, through the wildfires this summer. And obviously, they're not seeing the snow that they need uh, in order to, to maintain their operations. Uh, you could go across so many different in, uh, industries, um, and, and the, the impacts are profound, and they're no longer these you know, out-year distant things. They're increasingly here and now. So no, no time for winemaking in Congress. You still, uh, you still get any volleyball in? <laughs> well, the, the, the physical limitations to the, like being unable to jump that have hurt my volleyball. <laughs> Do people know you're a tennis. world champion? You're a world champion volleyball player. We're on the USA basketball, or I mean volleyball team that was number one in the world. I was back in the day. Now, now I play a lot of tennis. Oh, that's my sport. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, Hey, really appreciate it, uh, Congressman. Just actually, do you, do you have time for a quick hit? I just wanted to sure. circle back to on the on the on the you know front uh, as far as dealing with fossil fuel and uh, you know volatile prices right now. Do you, is there anything you? I mean, do you have any advice for how Bi what Biden should do? Any action he should take? There's been talk of, uh, I, I mean, it seems like a long shot to me, but actually banning you know ex oil exports again, reimposing that temporarily. Do you think that? something like that is necessary or you just kind of ride ride this wave and deal with it well you know i wouldn't oppose that i was opposed of course to lifting the ban on crude oil exports i thought that was a really bad idea um but you know here we are he should do what every other president has done when this fossil fuel roller coaster takes us into a really bad place that's starting to hurt people you've listed some of the obvious tools between the spro and, and other uh, emergency actions that he could take in the short term you know when when the fossil fuel industry has you by the short hairs these are the things that you can do but um, let, let me tell you it's pretty nice uh, just speaking personally 
to not have to fill up my vehicle because I've made the switch to an EV and it's wonderful. And I don't even know what gas prices, I mean, I do know what they are, but I don't feel them in my household. Mm. And we need to make that uh, an option for millions of more Americans to just get off this awful fossil fuel roller coaster. It's great when you're liberated from the tyranny of the pump. And uh, I hope we can get this Build Back Better Act passed and, and start liberating a lot of Americans from the tyranny of the pump. Congressman, yeah, thanks for thanks for your time. Thank you for joining us for uh, episode seven of the Plugged In Podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. That's a wrap, everybody. Uh, appreciate you listening. We'll have another episode of the Washington Examiner's Plugged In Podcast. It's going to come out to every Tuesday at around noon, so stay tuned next week. And also, don't forget, uh, if you don't already, well, I know, I know you do, but if you don't, uh, subscribe to my newsletter, Daily on Energy. You can do that also at WashingtonExaminer.com, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you next week. From the right policies to the right politics, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions helps bring durable climate solutions to life from a right-of-center perspective. Learn more about Cress's mission and programs, including the Clean Energy Boot Camp for candidates and elected officials at www.cressenergy.com.